This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Forever Calais Mom, a story about life, my child's death, and what forever really means. And all. My guest joining me from near Calgary, Alberta, Canada, is author and mom, Lorene Holiski. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. This is a uh, a story that's uh, heart-wrenching, uh, a tough story, because it deals with uh, a very personal tragedy that happened in your life. Share with my listeners a little of your background and how this book got to be written. I'm pretty much as normal a person as uh, anyone can be. There, I grew up on a farm in southern Saskatchewan, um, you know, had the same sort of dreams of a white picket fence and life that uh, most young people wanted, at least back in that era, considering I'm 60, so it's a little bit different for the young people now. But um, then I just, through a series of uh, happenstances, ended up uh, in Hawaii um, and fell in love and had a beautiful daughter and moved back to Canada and grew up and ended up in Calgary. And it was there that uh, my life took a a very sudden and dramatic turn from what I imagined it to be. Your daughter, Calais, was born in Hawaii, uh, and shortly after that you returned to to Canada, your home country, uh, because you felt it was a better situation for her, and things just didn't work out in Hawaii. No. um, You know, sometimes... Uh, vacation romances uh, tend to not have longevity, and and I think that was sort of the situation for for me and and Kale's dad, Peter. Your personal background, besides being an author, are there other, uh, I guess, focuses in your life that you have pursued besides uh, besides the the writing of this story? I'm an, I'm an analyst by profession. I've worked in several industries. Right now, I'm in the oil and gas industry. Uh, my na- my natural nature is to try to understand how things work, and trying to track molecules in gas pipelines uh, fits well with that tendency. The story of Calais. Uh, share with my listeners how it came about that uh, Calais is no longer with us. What happened to her life, and why was it cut short? Well, again, we were pretty normal mom and, and daughter, and at a teenager's, teenage years hit, and she started to go off uh, her path a bit. School became less important. She started hanging out with a, a new and, and a higher-risk group of friends, and I knew she was in trouble. So uh, after months of know trying to hold on to her we uh, my family and I staged in what I call an intervention and we sort of tricked her and uh, 
got her to my parents' ranch for a couple of weeks, thinking that I'll give her some time to uh, get her head back on straight. Mm. And I think we accomplished that. When we returned to uh, Calgary, um, she had sort of one last event she wanted to do with these friends, and sadly enough, uh, it was an overnight camping trip on the way back. Uh, The driver of the car fell asleep. We believe everyone in the vehicle was asleep, and uh, six kids died that day. Ouch. In a head-on crash. Unbelievable. How long ago did that take place? Your daughter was, uh, what, about 15 at the time? She was 16 and a half. 16 and a half, okay. And it would have been 14 years ago this Thursday. Her death anniversary is in a couple of days. Ouch. And you have spent 14 years thinking and analyzing the circumstances surrounding Calais' death and trying to get your, your head wrapped around it. What did you finally decide was the purpose for sharing your story? The real purpose was... How many people live this secret life? Nobody wants to be forced into an unimaginable event, whether it's the death of a child, you know, your house gets burned down in a, in a forest fire, cancer, all those things are unimaginable. But what happens is people don't want to know about that world. They prefer it to be unimaginable. So what happens then is everyone that is having to live that way, does it in secret. And I think that's just such a cry and shame. Here we are wanting to know everything about, you know, sort of what I consider slightly off-the-wall people through reality shows mm-hmm. and want to look behind the curtain to see how they live. But, you know, their next-door neighbor who is having to build a, a new lifetime in a different world uh, that has many, many, many challenges to it, they don't want to know anything about. So there's not enough written. We kind of tend to stick with, you know, sort of the standard five stages of grief. I believe that we need to add color to that and share more about that so that not only can the people who are forced into it have more information, but everybody around them can be more empathetic and supportive. At the time of uh, Calais' death and the burial, and you were visiting her graveside, and at that moment, another individual happened to be there that intersected with your life. Share a little of Sandra's story as well. Sandra's son, Jarrett, died from a brain aneurysm. Hmm. And she, so they had a few years on me in this journey, and I was very fortunate that At that point in her journey, Sandy was ready to finally look up and put her arms around someone else. And I happened to be that someone else. Beautiful timing and and appropriate timing. What did you learn or what have you taken away from this experience besides the, the obvious deep grief that any parent would experience? What have you learned as a person? Is there something that's a positive of uh, this story? I think that I've, you know, tapped into obviously strengths of myself that I didn't know I I had. But I think probably the one thing that gives me pause every now and then is just how much we can push our brains to think far beyond anything we ever thought we could when we really have to. I, I often tell people sometimes I thought so hard 
trying to find the right way to explain an emotion or something that was basically unspeakable, that my head hurt from it. But when you have to, you can find ways. And I think we have a whole world of great thinkers out there that just need to push themselves a little bit and maybe share what they learn. Is there anything in the, what I would call, or many people would refer to as a spiritual blessing or, uh, I guess, discovery that you perhaps made during this journey? Absolutely. Um, You know, I took faith with a grain of salt. I was a fair-weather, you know, God-believer. I live every day with faith. I have, my life is surrounded with angels. Um, I do my very best to uh, hold on to faith. It's one of the most slippery things to hold on to, Mm -hmm. but I work at it every day. You have talked also. Uh, one of your one of your uh, chapters is titled "The Red Phone." What does that chapter deal with? Basically, what it it deals with is a lot of. Um, it was a way that I found to be able to try to illustrate how much time I spent communicating with my dead child, how much time I spent communicating with God, and how that helped me survive those early uh, days and weeks of death. You have also titled one chapter, Future Blackboard. Is that future hope that you have penned in that chapter? You know, everyone has a future blackboard. We humans are future-based people. Everything from this second, you're already writing onto your future blackboard. Most often, we don't put in little things. We put in more major things on our future blackboard. It's just that once we write something on it, it stays on there until that time has come and passed. I struggled with that greatly because most everything on my future blackboard included my child. Mm. So I had to let things like graduating from high school and graduating from university pass. And it wasn't until I took a look at my future blackboard and saw how empty it was that I realized I needed to write something on it. Otherwise, I had no future. And that's where I finally sat down four years ago and wrote Forever Calais Mom on it and committed myself to writing this book. The story of, uh, of her life and your life, how would you describe this as a book that would uh, benefit someone who reads this? What is the hope that you have in sharing the story? I think my hope is that we're, we're more open to... Um, talking about things that maybe we're afraid of. But most important is every single parent I've talked to said the one thing they miss the most is saying their child's name. Mm. So to me, that was where Forever Kalei's mom came in. I'm communicating, you know, three things. One, I'm still her mom. Two, I get to say her name. And three, by identifying myself in that way, I'm telling people, I'm okay to talk to you about her. You don't have to be afraid to ask. That's what I hope, is that eventually we're okay with hearing the names of the children who have died and be open to uh, supporting parents in that way. Do you feel that the reader is going to leave the last page of your book and feel uplifted by the, the outcome of what you have discovered? I think... There'll be a whole bunch of words they'll feel at the end of the book. (laughs) Changed is probably the one that I I have been hearing the most uh, from people who said have read the the book. They said that 
they felt like they walked in my shoes, they felt my emotion, and they walked away changed. Some weren't changed because of the death experience. Some took parts of the, the different chapters and applied them just to their normal lives, the future blackboard being one of them. So changed. I hope people walk away changed. Do you feel also that this uh, maybe has some good insight into how we might be able to share with someone who has experienced a deep loss? Absolutely. Um, you know, we've worn out, you know, anger, blame, uh, depression, those five stages of grief. Every single chapter in the book adds color to those words in ways that I think people will be able to understand and appreciate more. Lorene, thank you for sharing your story and this very difficult, difficult story that you have shared. Forever, Kayleigh's Mom, a story about life, my child's death, and what forever really means. Lorene Holiski has been my guest. Lorene, where do we get copies of this book? Well, right now it's, it's all available only online. Uh, because I'm in Canada, the the best place is to go to Chapters Indigo, but it's also available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Do you think there may be a, a follow-up book to this release? There is a follow-up book. It's one that I've been thinking about. Uh, I know I'm brave enough to write it. I don't know if I'm brave enough to publish it yet. <laughs> well. Best of luck on this uh, this particular book, and hopefully a lot of uh, a lot of readers will uh, join in the experience of uh, of what you've shared. The title again is "Forever Kayleigh's Mom: A Story of Life, My Child's Death, and What Forever Really Means." Lorene Holiski has been my guest. Thank you, Lorene, for being part of today's program. You're very welcome. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Universe. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled In Shadows, and our author, D. R. Willis, joins me from near Savannah, Georgia. Welcome, sir, to the program. Hi, Jay, and uh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate this. I'm sorry to take you away from your primary focus. In addition to being an author, you're also involved in an industry that many of us crave. What is that industry, sir? Oh, well, um, we. my family makes uh, chocolate. Actually, I'm the one that... Um, 
that uh, makes most of the chocolate shapes that we sell for the holidays and novelty items. Um, so I do that maybe 11 hours a day. Incredible. Uh, you have you have my envy uh, on many levels because of that. This is your second book in a series titled In Shadows. Share with my listeners where the idea for this book came from and what In Shadows is all about. Well, a lo- actually, uh, a long time ago, uh, I started writing um, for, for um, my uh, mom who... Um, got diabetes, so she, she became legally blind. So I started writing short stories for uh, her and reading to her. And this is going back quite a ways. This is actually the mid-'80s, late-1980s. So um, that it kind of uh, spawned from there. Um, I stopped writing for a while, and all of a sudden, it, uh, the story idea came to me that I wanted to do something a little bit longer than a short story, and um, the whole idea came to me uh, rather suddenly. Uh, it's almost as if I woke up with the idea. In the story In Shadows, where does it begin? What's the setting, and what is the premise of the book? Well, the um, the setting is uh, actually right after the war, uh, World War II. So it's around 1940. Actually, this, this is uh, pretty much weeks after World War II. So it's in the mid-1940s. It is set in, um, actually it's set in two places. It's set in a in a small town um, near Savannah, a fictional town, and it's also set in a, uh, a small fictional town in New Jersey. And it, it follows um, the father of my main character that was in the first book. Uh, my, the first book, uh, his name was uh, Nick Davis, and um, the, the, uh, in that set in present times, and now in shadows, follows his father and how he gets um, caught up in, uh, I guess you could say, um, with the um, espionage, is a, is a good way to say it. Espionage. Your first book was titled Lonely Deception. Is it important for the reader to read that book? I know from an author's standpoint it is, but is it important to understand the concept of, of uh, lonely deceptions in order to understand in shadows? Well, what I tried to do was I tried to make um, each book, because I also have a, a third book coming out entitled uh, Cascading Lies, which will wrap up the trilogy. But I tried to make each book a standalone book. And, of course, as you said, as an author, I would love it if the reader read Lonely Deceptions first, because it would uh, make it a bit better for them for In Shadows. But uh, in reality, uh, they could just read In Shadows uh, uh, by itself and still enjoy the story. Is it character-driven, or is it action and, uh, uh, I guess, existence-driven? I would say it's more character-driven because I have um, um, a lot of, uh, I want to say, relationships going on, and um, you never quite know uh, who is who and who is uh, deceiving who. But the, 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 uh, throughout all of it, the, the strongest bond is between Nick Davis and his father, Nelson Davis, uh, like a true uh, bond of love between the father and the son, even though they're constantly fighting to uh, find the truth of what is happening um, to make their life so uh, miserable, I guess is, is a good way to say it. You have mentioned that In Shadows is set just following World War II. Did you need to do a lot of research, or because it's character-driven, was it simply a matter of 
crafting the characters to set that set in that uh, that time frame? No, I, I I actually did do a lot of research. I I mean I I, I always do um, research even when I was writing the uh, book that Lonely Deceptions, which is in present time. But I um, I did do a lot of background research on uh, World War II, uh, and of course that era, how they spoke. I watched. I watched movies that were made in the 1940s. I read a few, you know, um, I tried to read a few excerpts of uh, books that was written in the 1940s. I just tried to get the flavor of that era, even though I wasn't uh, actually around then. Uh, you used the word flavor, and I'm thinking again of chocolates. I'm sorry. Chocolates reminds me of uh, several things. First of all, you spend a lot of time in your craft as a chocolatier, and now you're developing your craft as a writer. How do you have time for both? Very good question. A lot of people ask me that because um, uh, people, a lot of people come into the store to actually buy my book because I have some here at the store so that they can get it signed. And that is their number one question. How do I have the time? Because they see me in the store all the time. <laughs> so what I do is I get up at, yeah, I get up about 3.30 in the morning. Oh, boy. And uh, I write, well, yeah, I write around 4.30 to 6 a.m. every single day. So seven days a week, I do that. And then if I have my research, I try to do in the evening, even though I'm, I'm kind of tired. So that's that's what I try to keep that regimen. I try not to miss any days because I, I, I do love writing. So that hour and a half uh, whizzes by. And then I come to the uh, store, uh, and we're here for about, again, it's my family. It's uh, all, all Things Chocolate and More is the name of, this, of the uh, family chocolate soap. It's my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my wife, our 14-year-old daughter, and myself that uh, makes the chocolate. That's amazing discipline. Many of my writers uh, don't necessarily approach the craft of being an author the way you do. Some will just write from inspiration. They'll get a, an idea for a story and just sit down and let it run, let the story control the direction that the uh, the storyline takes. You apparently uh, actually have an outline that you work from. Is that the right way to describe how you have crafted this? Yes, I do have a, uh, a mental outline. I never write it down, but I do have a, a mental, or I, I should say I have an idea of where I want to go, kind of how I want it to begin and end, and then I sort of have to fill out, you know, fill out the middle part of it, the most important part. But... Um, well, actually, or the ending is, could be the most important part. But what I do, very briefly, is I, I uh, write in the morning, as I said, and then throughout the day as I'm making chocolate, um, I kind of play out the next scene in my head over and over again with all the different kinds of dialogues and, and reactions of the characters. So by the time I sit down the next morning, it's almost written already, and I've kind of known uh, how I want to approach it. Beautiful. In writing in shadows, was there a a message that popped out that perhaps you hadn't been planning on sharing with the reader, but it did show up? I think because um, as I'm writing my books, there um, no matter how I try, I always get to more of a suspense-driven story. And even though I there's all these uh, again uh, espionage and, and spy things going around and some some murders, and um, there's, it's always more about relationships, which always surprised me, how they feel. Um, you know, they could just break down and weep. And um, I think the, the emotion always surprises me and, and how it, it also affects me sometimes. 
what's the underlying message, do you think? Is it have anything to do with, uh, you mentioned you're in a family business. Do that, any of your... Well, family, that's exactly the, that, that is it. You're, you're right, Jay. It's, it's uh, how important family is. No matter um, what life bestows upon you, um, how you react um, in relationship with your family is very important. Other people have read your works. What has then been the response of your first novel, Lonely Deceptions, and have you had an opportunity to share in shadows with some of those people, and what have they said about it? Yes, I've had a lot of people come back to me that they like Lonely Deceptions, and it's come out with some favorable reviews uh, from Kirkus and other uh, uh, review houses uh, did like Lonely Deceptions. Yes, we've, we've had uh, quite a few people read in shadows, and they've come back to me and they said, I... I think we like this even better. A word that they've been using is kind of edgy. They mm. just feel it's, it's just more edgy. Uh, they just like they just seem to like it better, more suspense, more of a thriller. You have 138 pages, not a long read. However, uh, in this 138 pages, is it one that's going to appeal to a broad audience? Is it more directed towards a mature audience? How would you describe it? Well, to another good question, I would say... At the very end, or towards the end, um, when someone... I, I don't want to give away the uh, story plot, because um, a lot of my story has uh, many twists and turns in it, but there, there's someone that the father... something that the father, Nelson Davis, finds out uh, as a result of, of this action that is um, that uh, would be that what you had described as adult-like. Okay. Well, suspense, you've mentioned that that's important for your readers, and apparently you are doing the same with uh, your descriptive of In Shadows. Oh, David, where do we get copies of yes. your book? Where do we get copies of your book? Uh, well, if you happen to live near Savannah, you could always pop in my store. Obviously, you would get it uh, signed, but you can um, purchase it at all things. I'm sorry, um, you could purchase it at uh, barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com. Uh, I have a, a website, D. R. Willis books.com and of course I'm on Twitter and Facebook. You're welcome to follow me or like me. Uh, you can get it through all those avenues and you are you should be able to also purchase it at your store. If they don't have it um, you can just order it from them at your local store. Absolutely and uh, listeners be on the lookout for the next in this trilogy. This particular edition is titled In Shadows. His first book, Lonely Deceptions. David, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. There will be more to come, and how soon will that be released? Uh, thank you, Jay. And uh, actually, the third book and the uh, conclusion of the trilogy should be released um, in less than two months. And it's entitled Cascading Lies. Phenomenal. And it wraps it all up. Phenomenal. Maybe not, maybe not neatly, but it wraps it all up. <laughs> well, for a chocolatier to wrap it up, I think that's uh, that's a great way to uh, to describe the writing of the trilogy. Thank you for joining me today, David. Oh, thank you very much. I, again, I appreciate this. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? 
Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Love Doesn't Die. And the author is Angela Brent Harris. And Angela joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Angela. Hello. Great. Just really good to have you with us. Uh, This book is uh, an inspiration, sharing your early childhood and your relationship with your dad and other family members. So we look at Love Doesn't Die, and as you put it, it's inspiring, it's spiritually enriched, it's a memoir of life in Jamaica. That has to be beautiful just by itself. Oh, tremendously. <laughs> right, uh, kind of growing up in, in a paradise. Certainly. And then also your home was a bit of a paradise, the way you describe it. It, it certainly was. Some of my fondest memories are living in Jamaica and living in the home setting that I grew up in, um, my mom's garden, you know, alongside with my dad and um, his enthusiasm for jazz mingled with all of that um, created a long-lasting um, impression that lives in my heart forever of who I am today. Well, all of that led you to become, as you describe yourself, a peacemaker and a spiritualist. So how did that family life have such an impact on you? Well, it has an impact on me because um, from as long as I can remember, both my father and my mother instilled a spiritual lifestyle and my dad was also very religious as well and um you know they always brought us up with a strong belief in god which also led us you know meet myself and uh, my siblings um to have a great self-worth of who we are of who you know we were as growing up as children and growing up to as young teenagers and adults and um they were consistent in who they were and in all the beliefs and that they taught us. My greatest guru was my dad. So I learned a lot of spirituality from him. I learned to meditate from him when I was about 17 years old. And it never it never changed. It, he was just consistent. So it was very easy to admire him, to love him, to follow him in his footsteps in who he was um, and day to day and it wasn't like okay today I'm doing this and tomorrow he actually meditated every single day and you know what I did follow in his footsteps because I do meditate twice daily and it has allowed me to not make things worry me I don't let little things bother me and um, you know what I feel free almost like a bird 
On yeah. top of all that, your father loved music. Yes, definitely. He was a jazz enthusiast. So He's you crazy. ended up so you ended up going to a lot of concerts with him. <laughs> yes. It was um, magical for me. Um he played basically all the instruments, so it was quite easy for him going to the concerts and seeing him um vibrate with a love for the music, especially jazz like um like I was telling you before and um it was enjoyable the type of instrumental music um was um something to behold for me. So you grow grow up in a home where the parents understand their responsibility. They understand that they need to have a positive influence on their children. They have to be examples. That that carries into many years of your life, that kind of an example. So as you look back on your dad and mom, do you remember a time when you didn't feel their love? I mean, was it always there? You know what? It is amazing that from, from as far as I can remember, I've never felt unloved or uncared for or unwanted. Even if I know I did something wrong, and I got myself in trouble. Um, I didn't feel like even if they were disappointed or upset with me, it, it's, you, you look into the eyes of my dad and you would see that tenderness and that love, but also you'd see like, I, like him talking with his eyes and saying, you know, I expected more from you. This is not, this is not the Angela I know. I, I expected you to do so and so. But then looking at him, you see that warmth in his eyes of love, but wanting so much for his children. And the same with my mom. She um, was a very, she's a very compassionate woman. And even if we did something wrong and she would get upset because she, she's a spicy one. You know, my dad was even keel and, and very soft. Um, but no, she, um, she was full of love and you'd feel it. And after that, she would sit and always reflect or talk to you. You know, she would say, well, you know, you did this and you did that, and mommy feels this way, and so would my dad. They would sit with us and discuss. If we ever falter, um, they would reflect and talk with us about what we did wrong or um, how we could have done something differently. Your dad came from a large family. Oh, yes. came from a, a large family indeed. And that had a, a great impact on him did he was he raised in that same kind of family strong family environment very much so um he, both his parents were principals and um they were very strict and they were also very loving very caring and they wanted the best for their children and it showed later on because um the type of, like, my father's eldest brother, um, he was a, a disciplinarian, but at the same time, he was so loving and um, so caring, and all the brothers and the sisters, um, you know, the, my uncles and aunts, were um, just the same. They grew up in that environment, positive, yet at the same time, um, very strict, especially they they wanted... Um, 
my grandparents wanted their children to grow up to be somebody in this world, to be um, educated, and um, and that was important to them. And it trickled on. Yes, surely did. So you have to work at it. A family has to work at it. Oh, definitely. You have to work at it, and it it has to be consistent, um, like a, a chain. You know, it, uh, it it has to flow, and the links of the chain together stay in intact and um, continuously, one after the next, continuously going along without any breakage. What is your life like as a mother? My life, um. I am a spiritualist. I have two boys, two amazingly beautiful souls, and that's the only way I can describe it. When I was pregnant with um, both boys, and both of them were planned, which means that we um, planned the, the pregnancies, so they were um, brought in this world with love. Um, during both pregnancies, I only looked at beautiful things, listened to beautiful music like Chopin, so you know what? It shows because they are very soft gentlemen. Of course, if someone were to mess with them, you know, they have the, the instinct, the wolf instinct in them. <laughs> but um, as a mom, um, I'm very protective over my, my children, and I grew them up with a lot of love. I tell them daily how much I love them. The eldest is 22, and my youngest is 17. And... I grow them up with warmth, but at the same time, I give them the same um, Jamaican upbringing that I grew up, the same way that I grew up, and um, I instill that the love, um, teaching them how to treat others, how they want to be treated, and um, it, it shows, and I am very, and I feel very blessed with my sons today. A lot of people blame others for their problems in life, that they're not happy, but you're pretty strong about only you can make you happy. You put the responsibility right on the individual. Oh, definitely. I believe that happiness is a choice. You see, you can have, you can be the poorest person with just a little room, living in a one-bedroom with a roof over your head, and you have, and you probably eat from hand to mouth so you, you have enough food to eat and yet you are this vibrant happy person because it's your choice to be happy and yet you can have the movie stars um, who live in mansions and they have 10 cars and chauffeurs and you know and everything and go to the restaurants daily and eat um, every kind of food take a, a, a jet private jet to some exotic island to eat some special food but yet, you know what? Yeah, you can have those people who they're unhappy, they want to end their lives, they don't feel good about themselves, they have to use drugs, they have low self-esteem. So I have seen that from time to time, especially as a first-grade teacher, um, being in the schools and seeing all different type of lifestyles, knowing that happiness is a choice. It's not like, oh... I'm going to feel happy if I go out and buy this beautiful red dress. Probably you're going on to buy this dress and you get home. You still will feel just exactly the way that you choose to feel. So that's my philosophy. When did your dad pass away? Um, November 7th this year will be five years. Five years. Now there are friends 
colleagues who were intrigued with the way you dealt with your dad's passing. Tell us about that. What were you feeling, and how did you deal with it? I dealt with it in a way that I didn't even know that I would deal with it. Um, I have been spiritually stronger over the last decade, and alongside that, I've become even closer with my father over the years. Um, he has been a, a strong spiritualist, and so as I so been, we have been hearing our spirituality together, talking about it. I've been exploring Buddhism and um, Hinduism, and I'd share it with my dad and talk to him on a spiritual level. I would talk to him about um, lucid dreams, about um, being clear auditory, being able to read energies, and so with all of this, you know, I could speak openly about my spirituality, about the various gifts that I get from God, that um, I'm able to help others, and I would ask him about it, and um, I would talk about it. Now, a year before he passed, he wanted to see me more, and he said to me, you know, he called me Chirpy, you know, because growing up, um, he said I was happy like a little bird. But, you know, he'd say, Chirpy, Angela, daddy's going home. And he didn't have to explain to me. Once he told me that, I said, hmm. I said, you really think that? But you seem fine, you know. And he wasn't sick that time. He didn't show any form of sickness. So I was, like, intrigued by this and got closer to him, even closer on a spiritual level. And um, anything spiritual or religious-wise, I would ask him for guidance. And I would bring over the, the children to see him more often. And um, and then when he started to have that pain, and first I thought it was his appendix. I said, no, oh, Daddy, probably it's your, your, it's your appendix. Because growing up, I didn't even see my dad as much as have a common cold. So I didn't think anything of it. He was in good shape and form, so I didn't think, oh, you know, he's getting sick. And for his age, he looked so, like, years younger than what his real age is. So I, I didn't even think of it. But on a soulful level, I felt like something something was wrong. And, I, and then um, we found out later that it, he had stage 4 colon cancer. And in the way in which he dealt with it, he wanted me to help him to prepare on his journey home, his, you know, and his only impeding worry or thought was about my mom. So basically it was me getting everything ready, getting ready um, to use my spiritual gifts that I had also to see his journey through um, with aromatherapy, um, the music when he got to hospice, and getting the getting the priest to come over to um, you know for his, the last rites and bless him and make sure um, almost like you're getting ready for a trip to on a vacation. But I believe so strongly in God and I'm so God fearing and with all that my dad was sharing with me, knowing that he really was was departing and um, I had to make sure I had my soul strong enough. Even though inside me, my heart was was low because I didn't want to to lose him. But I know every time I'd ask him, Daddy, when you go, let me know that you're still with me when you're gone. You know, so he helped 
and along with being a spiritualist, it helped me to deal with it in such a way that almost seems so enchanting to me that um, if someone had asked me years ago, uh, um, oh, how are you, how are you, how are you gonna deal with when your dad passed or your mom passed? I would be like, I wouldn't even want to touch this subject, and I am still sometimes in awe with how his whole departure from this world went. Yeah. We've been listening to Angela Brent Harris. She's the author of her book, Love Doesn't Die, and she calls this book a magical journey of memories of her father and and the whole family of the values, the traditions, the strength of great parents, the effect they had on her and, and how that has helped her throughout her life. Tell us, Angela, what's the best way to get your book? Best way to get my book, you can get it from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, iUniverse as well. Um, if you're local, you can get the book at in Florida. It's in Delray Beach. There's a beautiful, amazing store called Shining Through, and you can get a copy, um, hard copy, from them there as well. And um, that's basically uh, how you can get the book in both um, in both hard copy format as well as um, you know in the other um, Kindle format as well. Thank you so much, Angela, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. It has been a pleasure iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.